reading from Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As we've heard, we're starting a nine-week series looking at this letter written from Paul to the Philippians. Do you remember letters? I've got a a photo just to help jog your memory. It's a little bit nostalgic, I know. But how great were letters? I mean, it was hard to beat that feeling of going to the letterbox and finding a handwritten letter that someone you loved had written to you. I can't remember the last time I actually got a real letter, in fact. But there was a time when I used to write heaps of letters. When Kathy and I first met, we didn't really use email. I didn't really know how to use computers or email anyway. And when we'd have uni holidays, we'd write long, sickly kind of letters to each other. I mean, I found one just for this. And I'd read a bit out, except that I'd be I'm afraid that I'd die of embarrassment. And I know that if I made it through the ordeal, Kathy would kill me afterwards. If you're under 30, then maybe you've never even experienced that feeling of, of getting a letter at all. If, you, if that's you, you're missing out. And here's what you should do. After church today, you should turn to the person next to you and say, I'll give you $10 if you, might, if you write me a real letter, a real proper letter. You probably should pay for some postage as well, so that'll probably set you back about another $10 these days. So that's $20 for a letter, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Sometimes a friend comes to mind, and I think I should write them a long, real, proper letter, but I never do, because it just feels like so much effort. Now imagine the effort that it would have been back in those days, when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, there was the significant cost of, of the materials themselves. Then there was the huge effort and expense and time that it would have been to get the letter from Paul in Rome all the way to the Philippians. And so when this letter arrived, this letter to the Philippians that we're reading, you can imagine how excited they must have been. And all the more so, actually, because of the circumstances under which it was written and sent to them. It's written by Paul, someone they really love. This was the person who first told them about Jesus. But now Paul's writing this letter from Rome in prison, where he's awaiting a trial because he's been sharing the gospel. 
And the outcome of this trial is going to be either life or death for him. Now this makes this a pretty special letter that they're waiting on and that they have just received. But they and we know that it's even more special than that. Because Paul writes not just as a friend, he writes as an apostle. He's someone who's, who's seen Jesus alive again after Jesus had died. He's seen the resurrected Lord and he's been sent by Jesus in a unique way to bring the gospel message to the world. Now what this means, and we need to keep in mind of course, is that we're not just studying a letter for nine weeks as an interesting exercise. Those first recipients of the letter, they would have been hanging off Paul's every single word. But so should we be now as well. Because through this letter, the Holy Spirit speaks to us still today. As we understand what God was saying to the Philippians through Paul, we are hearing the Holy Spirit speaking to us still. That's pretty exciting, don't you think? So let's get into it. Look at how the letter starts. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Back when I went through high school, they were still teaching us how to write letters. I'm sure they don't do that anymore. And I can hardly remember a word of what they said, but I remember there was things about there being different types of letters, different types of structures and forms, depending on whether it's a business letter or a personal letter. Now, things were like that in the ancient world too. And Paul's letter here, it it takes the structure and the form of what is known as a letter of friendship. And in this letter, and and pretty much all of Paul's letters, he follows the usual customs and, and conventions for letter writing of the day. They've dug up all sorts of letters from that era. And the way that Paul shapes his letters is just like all the others, except he slightly changes each in every part, so that it's shaped by the gospel. So back then, when you'd write a letter, you'd put right up front who is the one writing it, and that's what we see that Paul does. And he includes Timothy, probably because Timothy's taking down the letter as he dictates it. But straight away, we see that this introduction shaped by the gospel, because he adds Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus... He literally writes, slaves of Christ Jesus. At each point, Paul shapes things by the gospel. So he addresses the letter to the Philippians, but he calls them and adds God's holy people. And the usual blessing, the convention of the time, a blessing would come next, but it becomes a gospel blessing. First, there's grace from the Father and the Son, and then comes peace. And then finally, where there's normally well wishes for good health in ancient letters. Instead, Paul tells them how he's been praying for their spiritual health. Every convention is there, but it's shaped by the gospel. Now, it's tempting to just skip over these kind of bits and just get straight to Paul's point. For years and years, that's how I used to read the Bible. These bits in the Bible, I'd be like, yeah, 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 let's let's just get to the real stuff. But if we do that, we risk missing two things. One thing that's a bit subtle and one thing that's very clear. First, we risk missing the way that the gospel doesn't throw out all the usual customs and conventions. Instead, it shapes them. 
And second, we risk missing the theme and the point of the whole letter. So first, let's just notice that Paul takes whatever customs he can, conventions, and he refocuses them. They're transformed and shaped by the gospel. And this is actually true of more than just letter writing. We don't throw out our usual customs and conventions unless they completely oppose the gospel. Instead, our usual customs are shaped by the gospel. That's the example Paul's setting here and in other places when he's all things to all people. What we once did without any thought to God, suddenly when we become gripped by the gospel, we see those things transformed. So, for example, maybe once we worked pretty much just for money. But now, when we're gripped by the gospel, we're refocused to work to serve Christ. The actual work we do might not have radically changed, but how we go about doing it and our motivations for doing it have been transformed enormously by the gospel. That's the subtle thing that we could easily miss in what Paul does here. But secondly, if we jump over this opening section, we risk missing the point and the theme of the whole letter. Paul's not just passing time writing pleasantries, he's already starting to give an overview of what this letter's all about. Let me give you some examples of how Paul hints of what's to come in the letter. So first, Paul identifies himself as a slave. That's a pretty confronting way to start a letter. But later on, in the letter, he, he actually calls on them to think about themselves in the same way. To think about themselves as servants of other people. And he says they're to do this because Christ Jesus himself became like a slave on our behalf to serve us. Let me give you another example of how Paul hints at what's to come in this letter. Paul calls them God's holy people. That's what saints mean. Saints is, is such a confusing word because we think of all, all sorts of things. It, it literally means God's holy people. And then later on in the letter, he calls on them to live pure lives as children of God, shining like stars in the dark sky. Now, when you piece this intro together and the prayer we're going to look at in a minute with the rest of the letter, it becomes very clear that this is a letter calling on the Philippians to see that the gospel shapes our identity, and every part of our lives. Just like the gospel transforms and shapes even the, the conventions around letter writing, Paul's letter itself is calling on the Philippians to allow each and every part of their lives, each and every part of their lives to be shaped by the gospel. And we get to see this especially in how Paul goes on to pray for them. And this is where we really get a taste for what the rest of this letter is about. So we're going we're gonna to dive into Paul's prayer and what we see first is how he prays and then we'll get to see what he prays second. So look with me at verse 3. Paul writes, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. That's the how. That's how he prays. And there's a lot going on there. But basically, Paul's absolutely overflowing with thankfulness and joy for these people that he's writing to. And we see the reason why in verse 5. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul considers these Philippians to be 
his gospel partners. And so our first big point today is this. Gospel partnership leads to joy and thankfulness. Paul, you can read about it in Acts, and, and we probably will have a look at it at some point over this series. Paul, he, t- he turns up in Philippi, and he tells them the gospel message. He told them, Jesus' death and resurrection means that he is Lord of all and Saviour of those who turn to him. That's the exact same gospel message that we know today. We could say it in lots of different ways, but at its heart, the gospel message is always Jesus' death and resurrection means he's Lord of all and Saviour of those who turn to him. And right from that first day, when when Paul shared that message with with the Philippians, they heard the gospel message and they became partners in sharing the gospel message. And we'll see what this means as we work our way through the letter. But basically, to be a gospel partner means to help the gospel message spread as we also help each other live lives shaped by the gospel. Which means anyone, anyone who truly believes the gospel message becomes a gospel partner. Now, they say good partners are hard to find and that's true. I should know because I was a bad partner at one point. I used to manage a business for a pharmacist when I first came out of uni. I, I, I sort of stalked the business on Google and it hasn't changed at all. There it is there. And I wasn't a proper partner. I didn't sort of own it. But we had a partnership of sorts. I managed this shop for my boss. And I was a terrible partner. I had no idea what I was doing. Alan, my boss, he had a shop just 10 minutes away. And so we used to undercut his prices. (laughs) I'm not sure why. (laughs) I can tell you, he didn't appreciate it very much. Being a, 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 a partner doesn't automatically mean being a good partner. Of course it doesn't. But Paul, he considers these Philippians to be great partners. He prays for them with overflowing joy and thankfulness. And it makes you wonder why he's so over the top about them. Is it just because he's in prison and they've remembered him and sent him money so that he can survive? Is that why he's so joyful and thankful? Well, it's certainly part of it, but it's deeper than that. There's something even more than joy and thankfulness to this partnership. And this brings us to our second point. Gospel partnership leads to affection. Look at verse 7 with me. He writes... It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's pretty intense, isn't it? The affection of Christ Jesus. I can tell you, I didn't have that kind of affection for Alan, my boss. And I know for a fact he didn't have that kind of affection for me. There's more than just gratitude that's going on here. There's something deeper to this partnership. And it's it's not because of what lies within them. It's not because they're great friends with common interests who get along wonderfully and lend out a hand when they're in trouble. It's not their friendship that's fueling the partnership. It's what they're partnered in. That's what's powering their deep friendship. 
The true strength of the partnership lies in the power and the importance of the gospel. Now, it's nearly always the case that the bigger the cause, the deeper the relationships that are formed. Let me tell you about two very different partnerships and and the different ways they affected relationships between people. When I was in high school, we used to have Clean Up Australia Days. And you get put into a team, a random team with random high school kids and teachers. And then for the whole day, you'd get to pick up rubbish. One year, the group that I was in got to pick up rubbish for a business in an industrial site. They must have been related to the principal or something. How close do you think we felt in that partnership cleaning up after some dodgy business all day with people that we didn't really like? Not close at all, I can tell you. Now let me tell you about a different partnership. Actually, I don't think I really need to tell you about this one. I'm sure that most of you could tell me all about it. A few weeks ago, more than 10,000 people partnered together. Over 100 divers, 900 police, 2,000 soldiers and many, many more people partnered together to save the lives of 12 boys and their coach. For that partnership, people made real sacrifice from farmers whose crops were flooded and destroyed with the water being pumped out of the caves, to a soldier, of course, who made the ultimate sacrifice. How close do you think that people felt in that partnership to save those boys? In some ways, the world partnered together. But those who were risking their lives together and depending on each other, without a doubt, their bonds together for that cause would have been extremely close and I can tell you if you were one of those people rescued from the cave the affection that that you'd feel for the person who risked their lives for you would be enormous and if we got pulled out of that cave and then were asked to help others we would wouldn't we without a moment's hesitation we'd do whatever we could you know if we were asked to cook in the kitchen for the volunteers we'd do it if we were asked to buy rescue material if we had the money we'd do it if we were asked to lay out oxygen tanks if we could dive we'd do it that's the kind of partnership that paul and the philippians had only even stronger paul he brought this life-saving message about jesus to them and they'd been freed from a fate worse than being trapped underground by trusting in jesus they'd been transferred from darkness eternal darkness, into God's eternal kingdom of light. And as Paul turns back into the darkness to tell more people about how they can be saved by Jesus, and as he asks them to partner with him, there's no way that they're going to say no, even though it meant making sacrifices for them. They did it with joy, with thankfulness and affection because they saw just how huge the gospel cause is. So what about us? If we believe the gospel, then we're partners in the gospel. There's no greater cause in this life that we could ever have. But the reality is we can be great partners and we can be pretty average partners. And the difference has got to do with whether we've been gripped by the power and the enormity of the gospel or not. I remember when I was 20 hearing a talk and the speaker asked us, has the gospel got you by the guts? 
And for me, that talk was like a punch in the guts because I realized, no, it hasn't. I wasn't gripped by the gospel. For me, it was a, a clean up Australia kind of cause, not a life and death kind of cause, an eternal life and death kind of cause. Now, maybe that's true for you too. Maybe you're not gripped by the gospel. And if so, then this letter is going to be good for you because it reminds us of the cause that God's caused us, called us to. And it reminds us that we need each other. We can't do it alone. Our partnership in this cause matters. What we'll see in this letter is that they're partnered with Paul all the way over in Rome. And they're partnered with each other in Philippi. And this is the same kind of pattern for us today as well. Here we're partnered to take the gospel to Adelaide's north, but we're also partnered to take the gospel elsewhere. Now, we can't really take the gospel to um, Cambodia ourselves. I mean, even though I've, I've figured out how to use a computer now and, and how to send emails, it's not really going to help take the gospel to Cambodia very well. If we're going to take the gospel to places like that, then we really do have to partner together. And that's exactly what we're doing with our gospel partners, the Prince, and in East Asia with Dave and Tab. But did you know, as a church, we don't give from our budget to our gospel partners? I hope you know this. We try to say at each AGM and, and at our um, newish course, when it was there and now at our Belong course, instead of giving from our church budget, we ask everyone to partner individually with our global gospel partners. And just recently, I felt convicted that I really should ask CMS how many of us at t and &E give to our partners because it's really hard to know that. And I thought it, w it wouldn't be a great thing if we talk about partnership but don't actually do it. Now, they didn't say who gives or how much, but they did tell me how many of us partner financially. And currently, it's 33 families or individuals. Now, I don't know whether that's good stats or bad stats compared to other churches. And I don't really care. Because I'd love to see at t &E every family or individual partnered. Even if we're only able to give a tiny bit. Because what matters more than how much is our partnership. And we partner with more than money. We know that. But I don't think it should be with less than money. I want us all to know that we're in this together and I want our gospel partners to know that too. So here's a real challenge for you. If you're not partnering financially, why not? I don't want you to do it out of guilt or a sense of duty. Do it because you see the enormous value of the cause of the gospel. And if you're a teenager, can I challenge you as well? Don't wait till you've grown up. Even if it's just $10 a month, the cost of a, a postage stamp, start now. Start now. Now, if you're here today and you're not walking with Jesus at this point in your life, then of course all of this will sound a bit strange to you. Because if you haven't realized yet what's at stake here, then the kind of passion that Christians have about all this seems a bit intense and, and probably a bit annoying. I get that. But this isn't Clean Up Australia Day. We're not trying to get you to join the team and pick up papers. We're partnered in something even more important than saving kids from flooded caves underground. 
And it would be wrong of us if we didn't call you to give up your life to the one who gave up his life for you and to join him. What we're engaged in, it matters an awful lot. As a church, we want to see our kids, we want to see our families, our neighbours, our colleagues saved by Jesus. And we don't want any of us here who've, who've tasted the power and the beauty of what Jesus has for us. We don't want anyone to be left behind. We want the gospel to fully take root in us and through us to take root in Adelaide's north and beyond. Well, so far, we've seen how Paul prays for them, with joy, with thankfulness, with affection for their gospel partnership. But briefly now, we're going to see what Paul actually prays for his gospel partners. And this brings us to our last point. Gospel partnership leads to prayer for righteous fruit. Look at verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. And given everything that we've seen so far, is that what you would have expected Paul to pray? Shouldn't Paul be praying that they'd reach more and more people with the gospel? Why does Paul pray that their love will abound and not their numbers? It's because the gospel, our gospel partnership, it's not one-dimensional. God doesn't just want his people to grow in number. He wants us to grow in depth. There's both breadth and depth to who God calls us to be. We're partnered to seeing people come to know Christ. That's breadth. But we're also partnered in seeing each other deepen in our love for God and our love for others. That's depth. If we try to reach people without love for them or or love for Christ, that's a very shallow approach. And it's not at all like Christ. And if we only have love for the lost but not love for God's people... That's a very shallow approach. And again, it's not at all like Christ. It's nothing like Jesus. Gospel partnership is three-dimensional kind of love. God wants us to have an ever-deepening love for Him, for His people, and for the lost. And Paul goes on to tell them the kind of love God wants us to have in verse 9. He says, Love that abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. That sounds a bit strange, don't you reckon? But it makes sense if you think about the opposite of that kind of love. The opposite of that kind of love is ignorant, shallow, short-sighted love. doesn't sound quite so appealing. But if you're married, then you probably already know what that kind of love is like, I'm guessing. Because at some point in your married life, I'm sure you would have had a conversation where you thought what you were doing was loving, but it turns out it wasn't. It was actually unhelpful and ignorant. And in hindsight, you probably should have figured it out yourself a lot earlier than you did. Is it just me who has those kind of moments? Like like when your wife tells you that she's having a problem with a friend. And so you try and solve it with a SWOT analysis. And eventually you find out she doesn't really appreciate that approach, approach. And you say, but I've been doing that for years. She says, yeah, I know. Tell me about it. That's kind of ignorant, short sighted love. Real relationships, they're about deepening love and our relationship with God infinitely more so. Ignorant love that's happy to stay ignorant isn't actually love at all. The gospel calls us to a deepening love. 
the kind of love we're called to doesn't say, God loves you just as you are. He's your biggest fan. That's not deep love, actually. Deep love says, God loves you. That's why he sent Jesus to die for you. Because your way of living is offensive to him. Every way of living where self is at the center is offensive to him. That's deep love. Shallow love says, God is love. He'll accept you even if you're LGBT. You don't need to change a thing. But deep love says, God loves you whether you're LGBT or straight or whatever. But whoever you are, none of us are truly straight. All of us are twisted in our sexuality. All of us are affected by sin. And so all of us need to let the gospel shape our sexual ethics. That's deep love. Shallow love, when someone offends us or or wrongs us, does nothing except avoid that person forevermore. But deep love humbly, gently confronts them, seeking reconciliation. And when someone does confront us about something wrong we've done, shallow love goes into defensive mode, whereas deep love listens to find at least the grain of truth that is always there when someone challenges us. Shallow love says we want TNE to be full of people, anyone, everyone, the more the merrier. But deep love says we want TNE to be full of people who are being shaped by the gospel, who know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Shallow love says I can love my friend but never rock the boat by telling them about Jesus. Whereas deep love says I'll pray for the opportunity to speak about Jesus and when it comes... I'll pray for courage courage to take it. And we could go on and on and on with the difference between shallow love and deep love. But the point is, it's the gospel that has this effect on us to have deepening love, to want deepening love, and to know what deepening love is. The gospel shapes us. And being gospel partners together means that we're partners in this too. God takes us deeper and deeper in our love for him and our love for others. Paul tells us exactly where this kind of love leads. Look at verse 10. It leads to us being able to discern what is best and being pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. When lost people people who are uninterested in God, who once were living for themselves. When God saves people like us through Jesus, and when he, he bears righteous fruit in our lives through Jesus, so that people are guided by a deep love for him and a deep love for others, when that happens, that's an amazing, beautiful thing that brings him glory. That's the power of the gospel. And that's what we're partners in. We get to see people saved through Jesus. Saved into ever-deepening love through Jesus. And doesn't that fill you with the same kind of thankfulness and joy and closeness that Paul talks about for his gospel partners in this letter? Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, please open our eyes to see the enormity of your love for us shown in Jesus. The reality that you so loved us that you sent Jesus. The reality that there is no other way that you wouldn't have sent Jesus to die in our place if there was a way for us to be your children. Lord, help us to see how enormous that is and how enormous it is that you call us to join in taking this message to others. Father, fill us with joy and thankfulness for what you've done, joy and thankfulness for what others have done in our lives in telling us about this truth, joy and thankfulness for those who go on speaking this to our kids on our behalf in Cambodia, East Asia, Mawson Lakes, all different places. Lord, fill us with joy and thankfulness and and a closeness that together we are engaged in this really hard work, not on our own, but with your Holy Spirit guiding us at each step. Lord, please help us to be great partners, to have an ever-deepening love for you, for each other, for the lost, and help us to do it not for our own glory, but for yours. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.